Good evening. It's Good Friday. Um, In some ways, I consider Good Friday, and especially the Sunday services, the most important sermons that I preach every year, because it's what what Christianity is all about. And when Jesus uh, came to the cross, when Jesus did all that he did, he did that for us who didn't deserve any of it whatsoever. And it's my task uh, in the will of God, I believe, uh, to try to help us to really understand that, uh, especially tonight. Now, if you have a Bible with you, if you don't, it, it won't be like Sunday morning. I am going to do some verse-by-verse teaching, but it'll, most of it will be on the screen. But if you have a Bible with you, we're going to start off, <coughs> excuse me, in Matthew chapter 26. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew chapter 26. And for those of you following in your Bibles, I'll keep you uh, online to see that, but it won't be a big disadvantage for you uh, if you don't happen to have a Bible with you tonight. So it starts off this way. When Jesus had finished saying all these things that he had been talking to the disciples about, <coughs> excuse me, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away And the Son of Man, now that was Jesus' self-designation out of the book of Daniel, which was an affirmation of deity. The Son of Man in Daniel was a picture of the Messiah. And so Jesus is actually saying this, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and I will be handed over, that's a word, it's pronounced perdidomai in the Greek language, and I say that on purpose, it's a violent word. So I'll be handed over to be crucified. And then it goes on to say, then the chief priests, this is Jesus speaking, remember, then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the place of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. It's even hard to read that. These are religious leaders. But not during the festival, they said, this Passover time, Or there may be a riot among the people because the people were in favor of all that Jesus was doing. Now, if you're following in your Bibles of Matthew 26, we'll go down to verse 14, and it reads this way. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked. This is one of the most wicked things you'll ever find in Scripture. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him, Jesus, over to you? And so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, which wasn't all that much. And from then on, Judas, who had been with Jesus for three years now, watched for an opportunity to hand him over. That's that word again. And of course, he was watching for a time to get Jesus alone because it would never go over if the crowd saw what was happening. So now here's what happens. Jesus then arranges for the Passover meal... And when Judas was not at the meal anymore, he tells the disciples uh, that one of them will betray him. Actually, Judas was there. He arranged the Passover meal when Judas wasn't there, so Judas wouldn't know where it was going to be. And then when Judas was there and, and the others were around the Passover table dinner that they're having, uh, he then tells them that one of them will betray him. 
And he again makes it clear <clears throat> that not only will he suffer, but suffer to the pain of death. Now, we've been studying through the Bible verse by verse. We've been going through the book of Luke, and we've already just finished that as the last week of Jesus' life, about the last five weeks of sermons. And you'll remember this, many of you. Luke chapter 22, uh, three different verses put together. It reads this way. When the hour came, that means when the time came, the picture here is one of God's plan for the ages. And when the time came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. When I read that, it just blows my mind. He knows what's going to happen. And he's saying, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And then we studied this last week a little bit. In the same way, after the supper, after the meal, there are four cups of wine that they drank in a, for a special purpose during this meal. And when the meal was over, three of the cups were already gone. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the final cup and saying to the disciples that who were there, uh, this cup is the new covenant. The new covenant, a covenant is a promise. It's a promise made by God for his, to his people. This is a new covenant. All covenants had to be sealed with blood sacrifice in the temple. A lamb would be slain or some other animal, and the blood would be uh, sprinkled on the altar. And so here's what he's saying. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. He's talking about himself, which is poured out for you. That's the cross. That's what he's talking about. They don't get it, but that's what he's talking about. Now, we have studied what happened next. Right after that meal, Judas is already gone. And right after that meal, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, a fairly peaceful place, but not for him. And he was extremely disturbed because he knew it was going to happen. And he prayed. And after some praying, it says in verse 39, if you're still with me in, the, uh, in going through <clears throat> Matthew's version here. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And then he prays the most important prayer we could ever pray to our father in heaven, yet not as I will, but as you will. Well, then things really move along. Judas the betrayer arrives with a huge contingent of soldiers, as if they needed them. Jesus is arrested. He's tied. Then we read after that about the sham trial by the Sanhedrin. That's the high council of the, of the Jews. And uh, they find him guilty of all kinds of things that he didn't do. And then, he, then we go to Pilate, and Pilate finds him not guilty. And then we go to Herod, King Herod, and he finds him not guilty. And then back to Pilate, and Pilate reiterates, this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then <clears throat> we have the incident where Peter disowns Jesus as he was told would happen by Jesus at the supper. And then Judas commits suicide, he hangs himself. So Jesus is now taken to be crucified. As he had predicted, 
a number of times in the hearing of his disciples. So if you're following along in Matthew, it's chapter 27, verse 27. So in Matthew 27, 27, here's what it reads. So we can move right along through what's happening here on uh, what we call Good Friday. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus in the praetorium. That's where all of the soldiers were. That's their place. And gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. That's not a really good translation. They slammed it down on his head. Those thorns would have uh, went into his skin. And if you've ever seen a head wound, there would have been blood everywhere. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. They said, Hail, King of the Jews. And then to make things even worse, uh, they spit at him, took the staff away from him, struck him on the head again and again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe, they put his own clothes back on him, and then they led him away to crucify him. Now, you'll remember what Jesus said in Luke's gospel, chapter 18, in our study. But it's important for me to show it to all of us here tonight for our own memories. And there'll be some that don't know. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus said to the disciples, this is before all of this happened that we just looked at, and he said, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man, everything that is written about me by the prophets. In other words, he's saying everything that's written in the Bible, in his case, the Old Testament, the Old Testament scrolls, they all knew them well. They had all been to synagogue many times. They'd heard lots of, uh, of preachers of the day, so they, they really knew what he, exactly what he was talking about. There, was all, there were all kinds of, of clearly written scripture. We just heard one of them. Uh, quoted in Isaiah 53 that made it very, very clear that the Messiah uh, would, in fact, have all this happen to him. And so he's saying, he says, so we're going to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about me will be fulfilled and I will be delivered over. There's that word again, violent word. I'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. They'll mock me, they'll insult me, they'll spit on me, they'll flog me, and they'll kill me. Now, back to uh, Matthew uh, 27, 32. It says, as they were going out, so Jesus is now, he's been flogged, he's, uh, been, he's taken, he's going to the place where the cross is going to, uh, he's going to be nailed to the cross. And verse 32 says, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and he was just there for Passover, and they forced him to carry the cross. There's a lot of irony in the story of the whole Easter story, and this is one piece of irony. Jesus said, if you are going to be a follower of mine, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. When you took up a cross, you were heading to your own death, so death to self. Forget about yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. And so here we have a man who is being forced to carry Jesus' cross. What, a, what an ironic picture it is. 
And they're both heading, now Simon's not going to be crucified, but they're both heading to this hill to be where Jesus will be crucified. Simon, by the way, later did become a follower of Jesus. In verse 33, they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. It's also called Calvary. That's why we're called Calvary Chapel. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Now, it's, he refused to kill the pain. In a sense, they were offering him ibuprofen or aspirin. That's the idea, just to kill some of the pain as if it would matter in this terrible thing they were going to do to him. And then in verse 35, the first half of the first sentence, it says, when they had crucified him. Now, I've always been impressed at how this is written. Some might ask why they did not describe the horrors of crucifixion. The reason is that everyone hearing this or reading this for the first time knew exactly what happened. They would have been repulsed just by the words crucified him. No matter how explicit I might be, we could never experience the same disgust as would be felt by someone in the first century. They had smelled the corpses. They had seen the birds attacking the bodies. They had heard the pitiful cries of those on the cross praying for death. We, we could not today imagine the horror that Jesus went through, the people around the cross, the mocking, the questioning. And more than that, we've all seen the crucifixes, and in all of the crucifixes you've ever seen, uh, Jesus has sort of a, a loincloth around him. On the cross, he was completely naked, the most shameful thing uh, that could happen to a man in that day. And the soldiers, in verse 35, it tells us, divided up his clothes by casting lots. That's like dice. And so they're sitting there after putting the nails in his hands, putting the nails through his feet, uh, putting him on the cross, putting the cross in there, and they're dividing up his clothing amongst themselves. And they kept watch over him there. So these soldiers who were hardened men who had done this many, many times, and there was a large crowd and a lot of Jesus' followers around, they were there to make sure no one interfered and no one would have interfered. And then... Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. The charge of the reason that you're getting crucified was always written above. And the charge read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And some of the people went to Pilate and says, you've got to change that. He said he was king of the Jews. No, Pilate says, what I put there, you leave there. Pilate was had been blown away by this whole thing. He tried everything he could to get rid of Jesus, uh, not to get him crucified. But he got, in a way, forced into, if you, he didn't have that much character anyhow, but forced into doing it. And then it tells us in verse 38 that two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Now, rebels is a good word here. Common criminals were not crucified. You had to be a rebel, a terrorist, somebody that was trying to take over the country. And then in verse 39, it says, 
that those who passed by, many people, this was a major thoroughfare where people could, uh, could pass by and saw what happened and would stop and watch what they could stand to watch. But those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. They were misrepresenting him because that was one of the charges against him that was getting him crucified is that he said he was going to destroy the temple. And of course, if the Romans even believed that, they would have immediately arrested him and all of his followers. But Jesus was talking about his own body. And it was obvious that's what he was talking about. But the religious leaders were so jealous of Jesus and so they wanted so badly to get rid of him that they turned that into an accusation that wasn't even true. And then in the same way, the chief priests, remember these are the head people in the religious system called Judaism. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked Jesus. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him. This is a favorite taunt of the atheists from time to time. If Jesus will appear to me right now, then I will believe him. Uh, we had a, a debate here one time, a live debate, but it was on a big, the big screen between one of the best-known atheists in the country and, uh, and a, a Christian. And that was one of the things that come up, uh, where uh, the atheist, he was losing in the debate, and he ended up uh, saying that if Jesus would appear to me, I believe him. And the other man stood up right away and said, no, no, that wouldn't make any difference. And the truth is, the unbelief of these men mocking Jesus is a complete refusal, a refusal to believe, no matter how powerful the evidence. And I know what I'm talking about. I was an atheist for a long time and very ignorant and loved to, to argue with people. And uh, I used to dare God to strike me. The evidence that Jesus was God and that his message of sin and redemption are true is overwhelming. Today, we have some of the most intelligent and communicative apologists who have ever lived. They've debated, they've written books, they've proved beyond any reasonable doubt the truth about Jesus the Messiah. But people still refuse to believe and I can assure you that even if Jesus were to have come down from the cross or appeared in front of the religious leaders, they still would not have believed, nor would the doubters of today. Jesus told a parable uh, that we find in the book of Luke of two men, he was telling a story to make a point, who went to the Old Testament equivalent of heaven, one man to heaven the other man to hell. It's called their, uh, Abraham's bosom. It's a picture of the place of the dead. It has two compartments. One you don't want to be in, the other that's where you want to go. And uh, so uh, the one that was in hell was a rich man. The one that was in heaven was a poor man. The rich man had taken advantage of the poor man, wouldn't help him at all. And uh, the rich man lived really high, and he ends up in this uh, 
bad part of the place of the dead. And he doesn't say that he shouldn't be there, but Abraham is there. That's why it's called Abraham's bosom. And so he gets in a conversation with Abraham. Remember, this is a story Jesus was telling. And he says to the guy, he says, I have five brothers. Let me go back and warn them. I don't want them to have to come here. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. That means they have the Bible. They understand the Bible. Everybody in that day for sure knew what the Bible had to say. And then he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. And, and he said to Jesus said to him, not Jesus, but, well, Jesus is telling the story, but he has Abraham saying to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if they won't, in other words, if they won't believe what the Bible says, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You see, we have the scriptures today, the Old Testament and the New Testament, still the number one best-selling book in the whole world. Then we have the church all over the world. And then we have thousands of years of changed lives. And then we have the creation itself. That was the Apostle Paul's number one argument. You've ever had anybody say to you, I used to say it all the time, well, what about those who have never heard the gospel? What about the pygmies in, in uh, Africa, I used to say. I've, I've been to Africa a lot. I've never seen a pygmy in Africa. But at any rate, <laughs> uh, it's just an excuse. And so Paul gives, here's what he says in his writings in Romans chapter 1. He says, the wrath of God, the word wrath means anger, righteous anger, God's righteous anger is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. I mean, in other words, they do what they want to do anyhow, since what may be known about God is plain to everyone because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, the creation, so that people are without excuse. Who made all this? Last night, especially the moon, maybe it's probably the same again tonight, was just gorgeous to see. Uh, the, where my bed is situated, I could see through the window and I, I could see it move and it's always on time. Uh, the whole of creation, I love to look at the telescopes that you can go on the internet and, and see all of the, what's going on. And, and oh, it's amazing, the creation. So, somehow that happened. It couldn't just happen. And so we must have some responsibility to the one who is behind the creation. There's no excuse. Now, we as Christians, anybody who wants to be a Christian, we believe all this by faith based on reasonable evidence and now centuries of proof that Jesus is alive and sin is a problem and hell is a place to be avoided is right before us. Now, happily, there are many who truly want to know the truth and they're being saved. But sadly, there are also many who wish to be left alone and live life their way, who refuse all evidence regardless of how expertly it is presented. Now, we'll go all the way down to verse 45 if you're following in your Bibles, and here's what happens. Jesus is on the cross. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. That happened everywhere. 
from noon until three in the afternoon. And about three in the afternoon, when the light came out, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the darkest time, not just physically darkness, but the darkest time in all human history. This is when Jesus took on the sins of all of us. It's also a quote from Psalm chapter 22. Uh, The disciples would have known this psalm by heart. And later, after the resurrection, they talked They turn to Psalm 22 for encouragement as it literally paints a picture of crucifixion hundreds of years before anyone thought of such a thing. There's more. These three hours are the reason we're here tonight. These are three hours of silence to us if we had been there, but that was not the case with Jesus. We can't imagine the physical Suffering Jesus was enduring at this time, but even worse was the spiritual suffering. It had started in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Gospel of Luke tells us that in the Garden, Jesus was under so much pressure and sweat, he sweat drops of blood. That wasn't only because of the human pain. That would be enough to have made any of us run from the Garden and hide No, the real reason Jesus was sweating blood was because of the sin he would be taking on himself on our behalf. Remember, Jesus was God. He was the spotless lamb that took away the sins of the world, according to John the Baptist. He had personally never sinned. The horror of holiness being touched by human sin is unspeakable. He had never experienced such a thing. Pastor Paul Wallace, a friend of a church in Sedona, Arizona, wrote these words. It's called Wayside Chapel, his church. The physical suffering was horrific, but the spiritual war within the three hours of darkness, I think, is something we cannot comprehend. In those three hours when utter darkness engulfed the cross, Jesus faced the sins of the world placed upon him. Hell was unleashed to vent its fury against the Son of God. From noon until the time of the evening sacrifice, Jesus endured an eternity of wrath against sin. No one else could have. That was our just sentence, but he stood in for us. The love that is willing to do that is the greatest love the world has ever seen. John 15, 13 reads, Greater love has no man than this, that a a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus shared that time of darkness with no one. He was entirely alone. Isaiah prophesied he will bear their iniquity, and again he bore their sin. It was placed upon the holy person, but his holiness was not overcome by our sin. Once he had finished and the battle was won, the sun shone again. And then in verse 50, if you're following, but then right after that, Jesus cried out again 
in a loud voice, it says, and gave up his spirit. It is often asked, who killed Jesus? During the popularity of the film, The Passion of the Christ, quite a few years ago, there were panels formed with Jews and Christians and some secular people to assert that the Jews did not crucify Jesus, that it was not their fault. The media really played this up, and Mel Gibson, who directed the film, eliminated some words so as not to be accused of anti-Semitism. But the truth is, the Jews did crucify him. Now, don't be shocked. So did the Romans. And so did all the Gentiles and peoples, including me and you. We crucified our Lord on the cross. If we were not sinners, none of it would have been necessary. Jesus died for every single one of us in our place. And we must never forget that. So when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. No one took Jesus' life. He gave it voluntarily. He could have come down from the cross, but he didn't. He could have called upon a legion of angels and wiped everyone out, but he didn't. And even better than that, Jesus forgave those who crucified him. One of the most amazing of the seven sayings on the cross is recorded in Luke chapter 23, 34, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. It blew the mind, especially of the main centurion, but of the other soldiers. They had crucified so many people. They were so hardened in all of this. They're used to the begging from the cross and the crying and all that. It just went, they didn't even care about it at all. And yet Jesus, after all that, took the time to say in a loud, clear voice, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. One of the soldiers yelled out, this must be the Son of God. Another yells out, he, this, this man is innocent. They'd never seen anything like that. Well, now we know the rest of the story, don't we? Joseph of, of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both secret disciples of Jesus, both respected Jewish scholars, walked away from their secure Jewish roots and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus and placed the body in Joseph's tomb after carefully wrapping it with strips of linen uh, covering 75 pounds of various spices, a mixture of myrrh and aloes, so that the body would not deteriorate as fast. Also, several women who were followers of Jesus noted the place of the tomb and witnessed the body in the tomb. And at this point, keep in mind, all the disciples, the men, were all hiding. Joseph and Nicodemus were making their commitment to Jesus open to anyone who wanted to know. Jesus was dead. Resurrection was impossible. Joseph and Nicodemus would lose everything in identifying with Jesus. They are a picture to all of us of full commitment by faith in Jesus regarding the cost. And then verse 62, as we finish, reads this way. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, they're talking about Jesus, 
said, after three days, I'll rise again. Jesus said it many times. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate said, take a guard, go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the 1,000-pound stone that guarded, that already was over it, and posted the guard. They were guarding with their own lives because if the body was not there, <laughs> then they would all be killed. But of course, many of you know what happened, and we're, that's what the next sermon is going to be about in a couple of days, uh, and uh, all of that. Uh, but they were not killed so they could have a rumor go about that the Jesus, came, Jesus came and stole the body. He overcame these expert soldiers, and they uh, stole uh, the body of Jesus and hid it away. Well, of course, that's not true. Well, many, uh, many years ago in Sarasota, I was uh, attending uh, an event where uh, Tony Campalo was speaking. Uh, Tony Campalo was one of the most uh, forceful, wonderful, inspirational speakers in that day uh, that I'd ever heard. He had a big impact on my life and in follow, what it meant to follow Jesus. But he did a sermon that became a book that in this church years ago, everybody was almost forced to read it. It was such a great book. And the sermon was so inspirational, it just brought us all to our feet. And the name of the book is, it's Friday... But Sunday is coming, and that's where we're leaving this. It's Friday, but Sunday is coming, and we are going to celebrate in three services this coming Sunday. But tonight, we're going to have communion. Now, the reason we have communion is so that we'll remember not to ever forget the cost of our free salvation, because salvation is free. It doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, what ethnicity you have, uh, what terrible things you did, or even what good things you did. All you have to do is to come and say, dear Jesus, please save me. Come into my life. Change me. Give me that eternal life that is a life better than I could have ever lived otherwise so I can be confident and have hope for the future, and the future is forever. And if you just pray any kind of prayer with those words on it, you'll be saved. But then we're commanded as a people to do communion regularly, which means that when we take the blood or the, the well, when we take the, uh, the crackers that represents the body of Jesus and what he did on the cross for us, and when we take the, uh, the wine, the juice that we're using, it's a picture of Jesus' blood that he shed for us. And it's a time to have great thought and prayer, and it's, it's we're to be doing this until he comes, and it's a time for us to confess our sins to ourselves, to God, through ourselves to God, uh, and uh, it's a time to really get ourselves as close as we can, because God is here. He, this Holy Spirit is here right now, and he wants to encourage all of us that it is Friday, and it is true that Jesus rose from the dead which I hope we'll be able to prove pretty clearly uh, come Sunday. 
So here's the, what we're going to do. I'm going <clears> to, <throat> we have uh, one, two, th three, four places you can look around. Uh, I want all of you to come at, uh, at your own time. We'll just take our time. The musicians are going to be, or Pascal, they'll all be up here. And, uh, <laughs> and so uh, just take your time getting it and going back to your seats. And then uh, once everybody has had the chance to do that, uh, then I'm just going to lead you in a couple of prayers. And then we're going to worship just a little bit more so that you can have a chance to really thank God for all he has done for us. So stand with me at this point. I'll pray to begin with. Father, thank you for sending your son, for loving us that much. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. And then our obedience to what you said that we're to do. Uh, tonight, we're going to remember that sacrifice that you so willingly did for us so that we can live for you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.